This morning's reading is from Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29 through the end of the chapter. And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with your glory, O Lord. And even right this moment, the four living creatures and the 24 elders and the angels of heaven are gathered around you and singing the very words that I just spoke. And they will do so forever and ever because that's who you are. Holiness is the foundation of your being and mercy is the cry of your heart. And I love you for both things, Lord. And I pray with all of my heart that through Leviticus 11 through 16 today, that you would exalt both your mercy and your holiness and show us how to balance both in receiving them and in living according to them. Father, all of the praying has been done, all of the planning has been done, the singing has been done, the, the soil of the souls of our, or the, the soil of our hearts has been tilled as much as it can be tilled now and now the time has come to speak the seed of the word of God into the lives of your people and I pray that it would land well on us I pray that it would root I pray that it would grow in us I pray that it would sprout and produce fruits and Lord I'm not speaking in general terms I mean Father that behavior would change that the ability to receive mercy would magnify that the passion to pursue holiness would magnify. I pray, Lord, that the way we live our lives would be different after today because you have spoken to us by your word. So please come now, holy God, merciful God. We trust in you alone. We forsake trust in all other things. We turn our eyes away from what we think of this church and what we think of ourselves and what we think of our city and what we think of so many things. Lord, we turn our eyes away from those things and fix our eyes on you and say, please come now, mighty God, merciful God, and feed us. And I thank you, Lord, for what you will do because I know that you've given a word for your church today and I know that your word never comes back void and so we can rest ourselves in the hope that you will accomplish all of your purposes. And for that, we give great thanks and praise to you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Two weeks ago, we began a a four-week journey through the book of Leviticus. And we saw there in the first seven chapters that God exalted His mercy to a very high place by providing a way for the forgiveness of sins to actually be possible. 
So I know I've said this again and again, but I just want to encourage us not to take this for granted. God made a way for the guilt and the shame and the penalty we feel from the things that we have done to be removed because He is merciful. God meant what He said in Exodus chapter 34 verse 6. You remember when He was up on the mountain and He revealed Himself to Moses? He covered Moses' face so that he could only see his backside. But as He went by, He spoke those words, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. I'm slow to anger and I'm abounding in steadfast love. God meant those words, beloved. And Leviticus chapters 1 through 7 display the fact for us because through those sacrifices, God mercifully made a way for the forgiveness of our sins. There's no better news on the earth because if God didn't forgive sins, we would be wiped off the earth. We would. So praise God for His mercy. Last week, we saw that the Lord turned His attention toward the priests of Israel in chapters 8 through 10, and He trained them how to present the offerings that He had required. Two of those priests, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, did not take God's words very seriously. They took God and His commands lightly. And rather than doing what God required, they did what they desired, and God did not take that lightly, beloved. God did not think that a small thing for them to wipe away God's commands in favor of their own desires. And so you'll remember that right there in the sanctuary, right in the holy place, God consumed them with fire and took their physical lives. That's how serious God thought their offense was. And He explained to the people of Israel that His reason for doing this was to press upon them the truth that among those who come near to God, among His priests, He must be set apart as holy, He must be sanctified, so that He can be glorified in the eyes of His people. This is not a small matter. This is nothing that God takes lightly. And He showed that by taking the lives of these two priests who did take Him lightly. The Lord was trying to teach His people in chapters 1-10, through 10, that He is first of all merciful. And He's exalting His mercy to a very high place. And then especially in chapter 10, He's telling His people, listen, my mercy does not erase my holiness. I also am holy. So He exalts that to a very high place and He tells them, you have to keep both of these things in mind. Keep both of these things in balance. I am merciful. I am holy. I will never compromise either one. And the Lord was trying to teach the leaders of his people something. He was teaching them that the way you treat me in private has everything to do with the people's experience of me in public. So set me apart as holy and I will be glorified among the people. So take note, pastors. Take note, other leaders of this church, worship people, community group leaders, finance people, whatever else you do in this church, take note. Your life before the Lord impacts the public experience of the glory of God. So pursue Him based on His mercy. Today, we turn our attention to Leviticus chapters 11 through 16, where we're going to see how God applied His mercy and His holiness, not only to the priests, but now also to the people of Israel. And we're going to discover along the way, again, that God in His mercy provided the decisive way for atonement, and that in His holiness, He called His people to be holy as He is holy. The, the Lord is saying that His mercy covers us, and His holiness beckons us to a new way of life in that order. And so the message for us today is in the title of the sermon. 
Receive God's mercy. Pursue God's holiness in that order. So I want to begin by just summarizing for us the content and the flow of Leviticus 11 through 16, and then I'll come back and do the best that I can to try to apply these things to our lives today. If you'll please flip back to Leviticus chapter 10, actually, I want to begin there with two verses because it sets up the following chapters. In Leviticus chapter 10, if you look at verses 10 and 11, you'll see there that God called Aaron, and through Aaron, all the priests of God, to spend their lives distinguishing between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and then to teach the people of Israel to do the same. So, in other words, Aaron was called to live a life where he thought about the difference between the holy things and unholy things, and then through the constant practice of discernment to learn practical life wisdom for for making all that make sense in earthly life. And then as God taught him, he was to overflow and teach the people of Israel. He was primarily, as a priest, a discerner and teacher of the will of God. This was not lifestyle advice from the Lord to Aaron, by the way. This was the command of God upon his life. This was no small thing. This was not God saying, Aaron, if, you, if you'd like, you could kind of live this way or, or, or not. No, God was commanding, Aaron, I have created you, I have called you, I have now anointed you, and I am telling you, your life is to live by holiness and to teach other people to do the same. This was a serious calling. Very serious. However... The Lord never calls without equipping. He never commands or a man or a woman to do anything without giving them everything that they need for the things that He has called them to do. And that also is great news for us to celebrate. God will never call you to do something without equipping you and empowering you to do what He's called you to do. So, rather than leaving Aaron to look on the blank canvas of life and, like, and figure this stuff out for himself... Like Aaron would just had to go out into a field and figure out what the difference between the holy and the common was and the clean and the unclean. God did not do that. Rather, God spent the next five chapters laying out in great detail for Aaron exactly what the differences are between the clean and the unclean, the holy and the unholy. God did not leave him to these things on himself. Rather, God revealed his wisdom to Aaron. And now Aaron's job was to understand the word of the Lord, apply it to his life, and then teach the people of Israel to do the same. Again, God had a heavy calling upon Aaron, but he gave him every single thing that he needed to actually fruitfully fulfill that calling. So, in Leviticus chapters 11 through 15, the Lord provides a great deal of insight into the differences between the clean and the unclean. All right, So that's 11 through 15. Then I want to skip over one chapter and say that in, a, in Leviticus 17 through 27, God gives him an enormous amount of wisdom for how to distinguish between the holy and the common. Okay, So in 11 to 15, clean and unclean. I'm going to skip this chapter for now. And over here, 17 to 27, sometimes called the holiness code, God gives Aaron a lot of wisdom about the difference between the holy and the common. Right smack dab in the middle of these two sections, God puts intentionally a Leviticus chapter 16, which describes for us the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was that holy day on which the priest would sacrifice the, the things that God required, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, so that their sins could be forgiven 
They could be released from the penalty of the things that they have done. And they could be free to love the Lord their God with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. So the most important thing I'd really like us to see this morning about the, at least about the flow of Leviticus, is please see the symmetry that's there. And please understand the message that God is sending by the symmetry. Chapters 11 through 15, clean and unclean. Chapters 17 through 27, holy and common. Right smack dab in the middle, the day of atonement. The day of atonement. God is screaming to us a very loud message. And I believe the message is this. The, the, the power for the forgiveness of your sins will not be found in your obedience to my laws. I will provide for the forgiveness of your sins. My sacrifices will be the decisive thing that free you from the things that you have done and free you to worship me with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And on the basis of the atonement I have provided, then yes, I call you to distinguish between clean and unclean. I call you to distinguish between holy and unholy. But the message is, receive my mercy. Pursue my holiness in that order. The order is very, very important. And I do believe that that's what essentially Leviticus 11 to the end of the book is all about. So with that, let's turn our attention to chapter 11 now. And we'll see there that God grants Aaron a a great deal of wisdom with regard to distinguishing between certain kinds of animals and even insects that they could eat. I've told you stories before how when I was over in India, the kids actually loved to eat insects. I think they would like this part of Leviticus. They'd see, see, Pastor Charlie, even God makes provision for people to eat certain insects. So that's fine for them. I'm still going to refuse. Next time one of the kids offers me a bug, I'm going to say, thanks, but no thanks. I love you, but I don't do bugs. But in God's mind, they're not all off the table. The details of these distinctions are very important, and perhaps we'll look at it carefully at another time, but in the interest of time, what I want to do is turn your attention to chapter 11, verses 44 through 45, because in those verses, God reveals the point of making all these distinctions. So we can go into the details, and, and I think it's helpful and fruitful to do so, but for our purposes, and since our time is limited, I just want to get to the point. And in 44 and 45, he tells us what that is. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with anything, any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Holy. I believe that verse 45 is the key to this whole section of Leviticus and is certainly one of the keys, if not the key to the entire book of Leviticus. You shall therefore be holy, for I, the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, I, your Redeemer, I am holy, so come and be like me. Now, when we do look carefully at the distinctions God called the Israelites to make in this chapter, we do see that some of them had to do with health reasons. There are discernible health things that God may have been pointing to. For instance, if you eat pork in the wrong way, you're, you're, you're liable to get what they call trichinosis. I looked it up. I practiced pronouncing it, but I have no idea what it is. Maybe some of you know what trichinosis is. John, you mentioned that to me the other day. Maybe you know what it is. I just, it doesn't sound good and I don't want it. All right. So perhaps in some of these laws, God was trying to protect his people. But the problem with that way of thinking is that if you carefully look at all the distinctions 
creations God made, those kind of dangers are not there with all kinds of other animals. And so as I looked at that and prayed about it, I really think that at the end of the day, the Lord was using all these distinctions among animals to teach His people the power of discernment so that they would have practice to discern between things that are much more important than animals. You see? I think that God was using animals to teach His people to distinguish between clean moral things and unclean moral things. I think that the Lord wanted them to understand that there are certain things in life that make us fit to be in His presence, and there are other things in life that actually make us unfit and unwelcome in the presence of God. So yes, God is merciful, immensely, infinitely merciful, but He is holy. And there are things that we do that He would look and say, yes, I created you, but you're not welcome in my presence. You are unclean. And so the Lord was trying to use smaller things to teach His people bigger things. There is a difference between holy and common. There is. There's a difference between clean and unclean. Or to put it in our modern terms, there's a difference between right and wrong. A lot of people in our day are are trying to say there is no difference, right? They're saying that it's truth is relative. Right and wrong are relative. It's all circumstantial. It's all about you and what you feel, what you think. God is saying, no, that's wrong. And by the way, that propensity to do that is not just a modern or a postmodern thing. This idea that everything is relative has been in the human heart from the moment that we sinned. And so God is using these things to say, no, no, things are not relative. There is right, there is wrong, there is holy, there is common, there is clean, there is unclean. Now, we're Christians, so we have to read the Bible backwards in the sense that we have to read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And one of the reasons I believe that God was mainly trying to teach His people about moral things here is because in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23, Jesus actually abolished the dietary laws of Israel and declared all foods clean. Jesus said in Matthew 17, 7, 14 through 23, that we were welcome to eat anything we'd like because defilement comes from inside out, not from the outside in. He said, don't you know that things like murder and, and, and greed and lust and sexual immorality and all that, all this stuff proceeds from the inside of a person and comes out. So nothing outside of a person can make a person unclean. And then Mark inserts this little note in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now what's the point? The point is that in the Old Testament, God very clearly said, this is clean, this is not clean. In the New Testament, Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the law and says, that was just training wheels to teach you about more important things. These distinctions were helping you hone your powers of discernment to teach you that you have to think about stuff. You have to think about what's right. You have to think about what's wrong and then choose the right over the wrong. So I do believe with all of my heart that God was not so much legalistically trying to put commands upon His people, but in a heart of love, He was trying to teach His people how to come into His presence and enjoy fellowship with Him. And they had to learn this because He is holy. He's holy. We can't just come into the presence of God on any terms, beloved. We have to come in on His terms. And so, I guess what I'm saying is that this was a relational call from God to His people to teach them to distinguish between good things and bad things. 
with that as a foundation. The Lord goes on then in chapters 12 through 15 to make distinctions about a number of things. Clean and unclean. When a woman gives birth to a child. When a person acquires one form of skin disease or another. The Bible puts the word leprosy over that, but really it's a number of different kinds of skin diseases. It tells us what to do when a house is infested with mold. And I know some of you have had mold problems and actually found it very interesting to read those verses and see what God had to say and what He thought about the infestation of mold inside of a house. It might be interesting interesting thing to read and, and, and pray about, actually, if you've struggled with those kinds of things. And then finally, the Lord distinguishes between clean and unclean when men and women have various kinds of bodily discharges that were natural things. And you'll be glad to know that I'm not going to go into the details about that this morning. I'll leave that for you to read on your own. But actually, I would really encourage you to do it because there's some good insight there. But in the interest of time again, I want to ask you to go to chapter 15, verse 31, because here, now at the end of all these... Cl- laws about clean and unclean, God goes back to the point and and in a way says, listen, here's what I'm really saying. I've said a lot, but here's the point. Chapter 15, verse 31. Thus, you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. So, we see from this that the real, what's really at issue in Leviticus, really the whole book, but particularly right now between chapters 11 and 15, is that an utterly holy God has come to physically dwell in the presence of a hopelessly sinful people. Broken people who keep sinning over and over and over again, and a holy God who cannot sin and will never sin in thought, in word, or in deed. Perfect, pure holiness coming near to perpetual sinfulness. This is a problem. This is a real problem. For a holy God to dwell in the midst of an unholy people is a problem. So, He had to teach them how to treat Him as holy. He had to teach them to distinguish between the clean and the unclean and to separate themselves from the unclean things so that they could enjoy fellowship with God. Oh, I hope that this is landing on you. I hope you're hearing what I'm saying. This is not about legalism. It's about love. God was trying to pave the road to the path of fellowship with His people. And He knew that the only way to do that is to help them identify their sinfulness and uncleanness and remove themselves from it. And so, as I have said a couple times already, the law of God is not legalism, it's love. The law of God is relational more than it's legal. Of course, the law is legal, right? Laws are usually legal. But the laws of God exist to protect and prosper the relationship that God had with His people. The relationship did not exist so that laws could exist. At the heart of Leviticus 11 to 15 is the heart of God that wants to be in relationship with His people. God is merciful, He's relational, and He's after us. Even if He's holy and needs to deal with the difference between His holiness and our unholiness, the truth is that in the heart of God, He's he's after us, not just our obedience. So, chapter 16, to demonstrate the height and depth and width and breadth of this truth, God inserts chapter 16 right there. In some ways, it would have been so much more logical to save that to the end, but it's not a small thing and it's not an accidental thing that God slips the Day of Atonement right between all the laws on clean and unclean and all the laws on holy and common. God, again, was trying to graphically demonstrate that He had made a way for the forgiveness of sins 
and that He alone was the provider of the mercy that they need. He was sending this message that He is holy, but that the provision of their forgiveness was to be found not in their perfect obedience, but in the mercy that's in God's heart. And I hope you see, I hope that some of the walls between the Old and New Testament kind of start crumbling down for you because you ne- it was never the idea that people earned their salvation through the law. That was never the biblical teaching. Ever, 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 ever. God said, I provide atonement, then on the basis of atonement I call you to be holy. So these chapters are just to me beautiful. Beautiful, and I pray that the mercy of the great and holy God would wash over our hearts today and teach us how to obey Him out of, a, out of gratefulness and gratitude, not out of legalism. Oh, how beautiful, how glorious was the Day of Atonement. Just like I said last week, I would have loved to have been there just one time to see it, to see it live, to watch Aaron do his work. would have been a beautiful thing. It took place once per year in the fall, usually right around the month of October, sometime in there. And the, it called for all of the people of Israel to gather together as one people. First at the tabernacle and then later they had to go to Jerusalem where the temple was. And when everything and everyone was in its proper place, then Aaron, the high priest, would wash his body with water and then he would dress himself in those priestly garments that I described for us last week. And then after that, he would make sacrifices for himself and for the people and even for the tabernacle itself. So there was probably eight or nine steps that he had to take, but let me just summarize them in three kind of broad ways of things that Aaron did. After he had dressed himself, first of all, he would offer a bull of of a burnt offering on his own behalf for his own sin and the sin of his household. And then he would offer a goat of a sin offering on the people's behalf. And he would take some of the blood from that goat and he would actually go to every place in the tabernacle and sprinkle the tabernacle with the blood of that goat to make atonement for the physical place of the tabernacle. Now, I must confess that after 25 years of reading the Bible, I never slowed down here long enough to stop to think about that and how strange it is that God is saying that a building had to receive atonement atonement. It really perplexed me for about a half a day this week because I thought, God, a building cannot sin, so how can a building need atonement? Why are we making atonement for inanimate things? And the answer that I discerned in the scripture was that the physical thing called the tabernacle came near to an unclean and an unholy people, so itself it became unclean. And atonement had to be made for it because in a sense, the moldy sin of the people had transferred into the tabernacle and it had to be washed with the blood of Christ. It had to be. And I thought about New Testament passages that talk about the fact that Jesus Christ is coming to reconcile not just human beings, but everything in heaven and on earth, animate and inanimate. Romans 8 says that even the creation is groaning to God, waiting, praying, longing for the day of salvation when He will bring all things to consummation. So yes, sin affected everything, and everything has to be atoned for. And that's the first thing that Aaron did. He shed the blood of two animals and he sprinkled the blood trying to atone for many, many things. Next, he would do something that you probably heard about before under the name of a scapegoat. Here's the scapegoat. Here's where it comes from. He would take a second goat and Aaron would place his hands upon the goat on its head and he would confess onto that goat all of the sins and transgressions and iniquities of the people of Israel. So I assume that this took him a long time. It wouldn't surprise me if Aaron was there with his hands on the goat confessing for hours, as others did. Nehemiah and, 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 uh, and 
not Ezekiel, what's the other guy's name? I can't remember his name, but oh, what's his name? We see them in the Bible, in their books, confessing the sins of their people. And I can see the priest doing this maybe even for hours. But whenever he was done, he would give the goat to someone who had been appointed, and that person would take the goat out into the wilderness and drive it away, drive it away as far as it could go. Some people think that the goat was actually driven off of a cliff near Jerusalem, but I am not really persuaded by that. I think that the, the really the idea here is that the sins are put on the people, then the goat is driven far, 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 far away as a way of saying the sin of the people has been removed from the camp. By the merciful atoning power of God, I have removed your sin from your presence. And it was at least permanent for a year for them. Third, Aaron would do a few more rituals, and after that, he would take the remaining part of, a, of several sacrifices, and they would take them outside the city, outside the tent, outside the camp, and burn them there outside the camp. That will become important in a little bit, so please remember that. Now, having revealed all these details of the Day of Atonement to Aaron through Moses, the Lord then commanded His people in strong terms. So please look at chapter 16, starting in verse 29. Here now is where Jesse read for us, and I don't want to reread the whole thing. But I do want to say that God then, after explaining this Day of Atonement, commanded His people in the strongest terms to keep it year by year by year, forever and ever. Quote, For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you, you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. That's like the gavel coming down and saying, not guilty. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. That, that is to say, you shall fast. It is a statute forever. So, this was the day on which God provided decisive atonement for His people's sins, and so He commanded them to observe it faithfully and joyfully year by year by year by year forever and ever. Sadly, they actually didn't obey that, but this was the call of God upon their life. So now I just want to step back and ask first what God was trying to teach Israel and then what He was trying to teach us through these chapters. Let me just say about Israel first that I think he was simply trying to teach his people that in his mercy he had provided for a way of atonement. Their forgiveness was not on their own backs. Their forgiveness was emerging out of the merciful heart of God. And in his holiness, God was calling them to be holy as he is holy. His mercy would cover them and his holiness would beckon them to a new way of life in that order. So yes, I do believe that God's message to Israel was the title of the sermon. Receive my mercy, pursue my holiness, and do it in that order. The order is of extreme importance. I call you to holiness based on the atonement that I have made for you. So, what then of us? What does this message have to do with us today? Well, I think it's actually identically word for word just the same, except that we have to process what God is saying to Israel through the lens of Jesus Christ. Jesus has now come, He's lived, He's died, He was buried, He raised again, He ascended into heaven, He's, he's totally taking control of all history, and so we have to now look back into Leviticus through the lens of Jesus and see what we see. And so what I want to do is talk a little bit about mercy first, and then I'll talk about the call to holiness in view of Christ. First, mercy. The Day of Atonement foreshadowed the life and the death of Jesus. All of it was pointing toward Jesus and then Jesus fulfilled every single aspect of the Day of Atonement. I invite you, look carefully at Leviticus 16 someday, and then read the book of Hebrews, and you'll see in every dot and tittle, 
Jesus fulfilled the Day of Atonement. The blood of bulls and goats could only take us so far. It could never provide a permanent sacrifice for sin, which is why it had to be offered year after year after year after year after year for century after century after century. The blood that was being used only was so valuable. And so one day, the blood, the, the, the blood of these bulls and goats that testified to Jesus, the fulfillment of these things came. Jesus came and shed a more perfect blood. He came and shed an infinitely valuable blood so that it didn't have to be shed year upon year upon year upon year, but it was shed for once and all. Now, this was not an afterthought in the mind of God. God had Jesus in mind when He developed the Day of Atonement and then He prophesied through His prophets about the coming of Jesus and the fulfilling of this day. Through the Day of Atonement, God taught His people that He was capable of removing all sin at a single moment, on a single day, through a single sacrifice. And now listen to this prophecy. You can turn there if you'd like. This is the book of Zechariah, chapter 3. Verses 8 through 10. These words were spoken 500 years before Christ walked the earth. Hear now, O Joshua. Remember, Joshua, that's Jesus' name as well. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring you my servant the branch, which is a metaphor for the Messiah. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. No doubt in my mind, God had Calvary in His mind when He inspired those words. In that day, that one day, declares the Lord of hosts, Every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. In other words, everybody will gather to celebrate the mercy of God displayed in Jesus Christ. They will know that he was the fulfillment of bloods, of the blood of bulls and goats. They will know that he is the decisive sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins. And as they receive, they will rejoice and not only alone, but together. They will celebrate when they see the things that God has done. And so when the time was full, Jesus came to this earth and He lived a perfectly righteous life, which meant that He became a, a sacrifice without spot or without blemish. And having become such, He then sacrificed Himself as the bull of the burnt offering and the goat of the sin offering, and as the scapegoat who's, who's, on whose head the Father put the sins of all the people and then drove Him outside the camp. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus even became those parts of the, of the other offerings that were taken outside the camp and burnt in a place that was uh, set apart for that purpose. He says in chapter 13 that Jesus, just like this offering, was sacrificed outside the city and in this way removed all the sin and all the shame of the people of Israel. Beloved, I, I invite you to prayerfully see that God handcrafted the Day of Atonement to prophesy about Christ and then Christ fulfilled the day of atonement in every dot and tittle. He became the perfect sacrifice. And so the point is this. In Christ, God made a decisive way for the forgiveness of our sins and His mercy to pour upon our lives. He is calling us, just as He called Israel, to receive His mercy. But for us, it's through the person of Jesus Christ. So I want to take just a few minutes here and try to massage the mercy of God into the hearts of His people. And I pray that, that I will touch on something here that's 
apropos to your life. First, if you're not a a believer in Jesus Christ today, I want to say to you, first of all, that your sin is very serious in the sight of God. And every time you've sinned, there has been a penalty incurred against God that you have to pay. And the price is very high. In fact, it's so high that you can never pay it. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God in Jesus Christ, by sending the perfect sacrifice, paid the penalty for your sins that you could never pay. And now all you have to do is look to Him and open up your heart and say, Yes, Lord, I will receive what You have done on my behalf. I acknowledge that I have sinned. I acknowledge that I owe You for that sin. And I acknowledge that You have done for me what I could never do for myself. So yes, I receive Your forgiveness. And if that's you here today, friend, I pray that you would open up your heart and believe. I pray that today would be a new day for you. I pray that the mercy of God would turn the world from black and white into full color for you as you see the beauty of Jesus. I was just flashing back right now on the moment I came to know Christ. This was really hard for me to describe, but I, the best thing that I know how to say is that when Jesus came to me on October 26th of 1986, it was like He walked into the room of my soul and flipped on a light switch. And I could see, for the first time in my life, I felt like I could see. And He helped me to see His holiness. And He helped me to see the darkness of my sin. And He called me to choose. And by His grace, I chose to follow Him. And by His grace, I've continued to follow Him. And I know that for some of you, this light could also turn on. And I pray that it will. I pray that the world would light up with color as Jesus shows you who He actually is. Oh, how I pray that for you. And I promise you that this afternoon when I pray for the church again, I will pray for you in this way. If you do believe in Christ, perhaps you struggle to receive the mercy of God because you feel like you have to earn God's love. I'm sure that there are some of you that feel like that. Some of you may feel like you can never be good enough. You feel like you never think clearly enough or never speak right enough or you never act quite good enough. You're always having to do more and more and more to please your father. You're always having to do more to get his, get his approval. I had a professor in college who, who got straight A's from the time she was in first grade to the time she earned her PhD. And she told us in class that every semester she'd bring her straight A's home to her father and her father would just look at it, throw it down and say, you can do better. Semester after semester after semester for her whole life. That woman struggled with performance issues with God because her father had taught her that there's no real way to ever get his acceptance. That's what he taught her. Well, I'm here to tell you that God is not like Jamie Kong's father. He's not. God has opened His arms and He's embraced you. He loves you. Just deal with it. There's nothing you can do to add to what God has done. There's nothing you can do to make Him love you more. There's nothing you can do to expand His mercy. His mercy is already infinite. So all He calls you to do is open it up and receive. Open your heart up and receive. And I pray that you will. I I pray for the freedom of Christ to be upon you. That you'll be released from this performance anxiety and just know that you are your Father's and He is yours and He is pleased with you in Christ. He is. Read the Bible and you'll see I'm not making this up. Others of you may struggle to receive God's mercy because truth be told, you don't want to repent. You don't want to give up your sins. You don't want to give up your way of life that are kind of like a pet to you. You like them. You're comfortable with them. Like an old pair of shoes. They're just comfortable, right? We all have these things in our lives. Jesus said in John 3.20, He said that sometimes people don't come into the light because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. So 
you know, if you got stuff to hide, it's not a great thing to come into a place where a floodlight is because all of a sudden it's all exposed. And Jesus is saying many of you are like that. And, and there may be some of us like that here today. Others of you, it may not be so much that you want to hold on to the pet sin, but you're just so ashamed of what you've done, you don't know how to bring yourself into the presence of the mercy of God. And I want to say to you, if you're in that category, for whatever reason, you're just hiding from God, and you're not willing to come into His presence and receive His mercy, I just want to say to you, the Lord made a perfect sacrifice for you. This is a, this is a personal thing. He did this for you. He knows your sins, by the way. There's no way for you to hide them from Him, right? Isn't that right? There's no way that you can actually keep from God what you've done. Do you really think He doesn't see? So come in and talk to Him. It might be a little piercing. It might be a little difficult. Believe me, I've been smacked up beside the mouth a couple times by my father, but he always does it for my good. He always does it to discipline me and, and, and lead me in the way that I should go. So I'm not telling you there won't be any discomfort in the presence of God, but I am telling you that there is mercy waiting for you that is much greater than your sins. So give up your petty compromises and come into the presence of God and just let it go. Let it go. And if you're ashamed of your sin, I wanna, I wanna encourage you, let that go too. So many of us feel trapped by our past, like I am just this way and I'm never gonna get over it, there's nothing I can do. I wanna tell you biblically, that's not true. The Bible says we are no longer slaves to our sin nature, but in the Spirit we are slaves to Christ. We have the power not to be the way we used to be, okay? We do. By the mercy of God. So I want to encourage you, come into His presence, receive His mercy, and let Him free you. Let Him free you. The Lord can do that, and oh, how I pray that He would. His message to all of us today, no matter where we're at, His first word is, receive my mercy. There's not a single exception to that rule in this room or around the world. So please, hear the beckoning word of God. Receive my mercy. Receive it in Christ. The second word is equally powerful. It's equally important. And it is, pursue my holiness. On the basis of what I've done for you in Christ, come and be holy like I am holy. I've told you before, I, for years, I heard that as a threat. It felt impossible to me. It felt like God was saying, come and be perfect. And by the way, you can't be perfect. So I would look at God and say, I don't get it. And it feels like such a burden. It felt so impossible to me. But after some years, the Lord helped me to see that it was not a burden, it's an invitation. God is saying, come and be like me. I have made atonement for your sins. I have given you the power to do what I've called you to do. So in Christ and by the power of Christ, come to me and be like me. Be holy as I am holy. Receive mercy. Pursue my holiness in that order. And just to be clear, just to show you that this command to pursue holiness is still in the New Testament, I want to read for you 1 Peter 1, 14-16, because he uses those exact words. He actually quotes Leviticus 11. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, that is, before you knew Christ. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So yes, Christ made the decisive sacrifice for our sins. That's true. And yes, Jesus Christ, once we believe in Him, nobody can snatch us out of His hands, and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. There's nothing that you can do to get Christ to do this in your life. Once He has you, you're His and He has you. That's that. Yes, 
Jesus teaches us that He will complete the work He began in us all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. Yes, yes, and yes to all that. And yes to His calling upon our lives. The Lord says, By the power of My stunning mercy, come and pursue My holiness. Even as Christians, we are called to receive God's mercy and pursue God's holiness in that order. We are called to make distinctions, beloved, between the holy and the common, the clean and the unclean, the right and the wrong, the pleasing and the unpleasing, the things that make us fit and the things that make us unfit for the presence of God. So yes, the calling is upon us this day. God speaks this word to us this day. Make a life of pursuing my holiness. Put away your idols. Put away your plans. Put away your hopes and your dreams. Come into my hopes and dreams because they're bigger, they're better, they're brighter, they're more enjoyable, they're longer lasting. Everything on this earth will fade away. But my will, my ways, my purposes, my plans, they will never, ever fade away. So come, be holy as I am holy. Some of you Beloved, need to really hear this word because I fear that some have, you've, you've sort of lost your first love. The, the, the passion you had for Christ has waned a little bit and you've let yourself slip into habits that you know are not right. Maybe you've returned to things that you used to do in your former life and you know it's not good, but you've just let it happen and no one's rebuked you. The Lord hasn't come to say stop that. Well, He's here to say that now this morning if that's you. If you have let your first love wane and you're giving in to things of the world, I want you to hear the loving call of your Father that says, Come back to me. Come back to me. Remember, the laws of God are not about legalism. They're about love. God wants us to know the deep joy of relating to Him, fellowshipping with Him. And what holiness does is clears all the junk out of the way so that we can relate with Him. That's what it does. The whole chapter in my book that I gave to this about purity in the sight of God. As we pursue purity, we gain eyes to see the glory of God. As we pursue compromise, the sky of our lives gets clouded and smoggy and we can't see the beauty and glory of who God is. So please hear the word clearly. God is calling you to pursue holiness today and me too. But please hear it rightly because God is calling you from a fatherly heart to say, come, pursue me, be like me, and have fellowship with me. I think there may be others of you who need to hear this call in a different way. Um, and I want to be really clear right now as I speak this, I really don't have anybody in mind about this. I prayed, I told Scott Flager and a couple of others on Friday night and Saturday, I spent about three hours just praying and praying and praying because some things about my message today were not clear in my mind. And I told the Lord, I said, Lord, I will not sit to write a single word until you speak to me. I won't do it. Even if it's 5 or 6 p.m. on Saturday night, I won't do it until I feel like I've got guidance from you. And this is one of those things that I just feel the Lord wanted me to say and I swear to you, I have nobody in mind, but it's an important word to speak. I think some of us in the Christian world have come out of the world, but in the process we have managed to become sort of legalists. We have managed to become people who suppress our own joy by trying to live by a bunch of rules. Do, 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 don't, 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 don't. And then we've also hurt other people because we pronounce on others what God has not pronounced upon them. 
So we look to the Bible and we make a set of laws for ourselves, which the Bible itself strictly forbids us from doing, but we do it, and then we put those not only on us, but we put them on everybody else, and we speak words of judgment on people when they don't live according to what we think they should be doing in Christ. That is wrong. That is deadly. Legalism is as deadly as liberalism. It is. Paul called legalism the teaching of demons in First Timothy. That's what he thought about it. So if that's you, if you struggle with that more legalistic thing, that more strict thing, that more living by the rules and pronouncing rules upon people, I want to also invite you into the mercy of God, not to compromise holiness, but to understand the nature of holiness as God sees it. Let's, let's be clear. The Holy Spirit loves holiness more than anybody, right? Is that right? He's called the Holy Spirit. He's the one who breathed out the command to come be holy as I am holy. The Holy Spirit cares deeply about holiness, but He understands that love is the heart of holiness. He gets that. He's the one that spoke this most powerful word, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire you to be merciful and kind and forgiving and gracious and upbuilding toward one another. I do not desire for you to legalistically pound people with the law of God or with your own laws. I do not desire that. I love holiness, the Lord says, but holiness proceeds from love. So I pray for you as well. We all have our struggles. We all have them. If this is your struggle... I want to encourage you to come into the presence of God and receive mercy from Him until you get that holiness is about love. When that light comes on for you, your life is going to become free, full of joy, powerful, upbuilding. I promise you that's true. I promise you that's true. There may be others who need to hear a particular kind of word, but I don't have any more to say. So I will trust that God will apply this word to your lives and to your hearts in a way that He sees fit. And I just want to say again, the message today is receive the mercy of God, pursue the holiness of God, and do it in that order. Do it by His power. Do it by His grace. Let me pray. Father, I thank You for this word. I thank You that a book like Leviticus lives and breathes today for us. I thank You that the word of God, once spoken, never falls to the ground. I thank you that when you inspired Moses, you saw Glory of Christ Fellowship on January 29th, 2012, talking about these things, and you purposed fruit for these verses that Moses never dreamed of. I thank you for that, Father. And now I pray that by your mercy and by your might, that you would come and fulfill everything that you have designed, O God. Oh, Father, I just feel it so strongly, and I pray that your mercy would pour down like a flood. I pray that the rains from heaven would fall upon us, God, and fill our hearts with the beauty of your mercy. Oh, God, these are not just words that I'm speaking. I pray that it would really happen in our lives today. I pray that it would happen in my life today. And, Father, I pray that the love-induced call from your heart to ours, come and be holy as I am holy, I pray that that would land upon us. I pray that you would help us discern the particulars. And I pray that you'd give us power to walk in the way that you want us to walk. By faith, Father, I want to give you thanks for what you will do because I know that you will accomplish your purposes through your word. And so we rest in that. In the great and gracious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.